0: Okay, we'll go ahead and start the last little bit here. We only have about 30 official minutes and uh, I've got an hour and a half presentations, I'll do it in 30 minutes. We'll cover a couple of these points that have become hot issues and uh, show you how some of my colleagues and I deal with some of the Hebrew challenges that have been brought forth. I was hoping to get into some science stuff, but you know, actually, as I look in the audience, there's two or three people who uh, are here who actually do the raw scientific stuff, and uh, I would refer you to the Geoscience Research Institute and some other great people here, uh, Dr. Leonard Brand, Dr. Ariel Roth, and there's a number of others I see here who are doing a lot of work, and I think they're doing an excellent job at looking at some of the scientific issues. But I'd like to come to a couple of problems for a few minutes, and then we'll open this up for question-answer, response, and so forth. one of the questions I can remember when I was at PUC, a young Bible teacher up there, it was just about the time the story took place that I talked about in Sabbath school this morning. Um, one of the physics professors came to me from PUC and he said, You know, Randy, what do you do with the problem of the two creation accounts? Uh, Genesis 1 gives one creation account, and Genesis 2 gives another one, and they contradict each other and i kind of knew there were some differences in the creation accounts you know i was a bible teacher but i hadn't really studied it from the historical critical perspective yet i wouldn't get that until i got to california state university and the university of arizona where my professors there were full-fledged historical critics and you know bang i got the whole thing um on a side note i'll say this very quick maybe i'll have time to come back to it later one of the first examples that my professor gave me at California State University why the Bible is not true. It seemed like a little trivial thing at the time, but he said, you know, one reason we know the Bible is not true, historically true, is because of the camels mentioned in the patriarchal narratives, you know, the stories of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and so forth, and I went, what? Because, you know, I've been over to you know the Middle East, been there a lot now, and you see camels all over the place. You know, it's hard to imagine the Middle East without camels, and I said, what do you mean no camels? He said, yeah, the camels. They're mentioned in the patriarchal narratives, but we know from archeology, span scientific evidence, that camels were not domesticated by human beings until well after the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. So that's one reason I know the Bible's not true, my professor told me, because of the reference to camels. He said this is one of several examples of what we call an anachronism. Should have put the pictures up in there because I actually have a whole story on the camel story. And he said that anachronism is where something's chronologically out of place. It'd be somewhat analogous to saying that George Washington went to his inauguration as president of the United States in a limousine, you know, a motorized limousine. You know, and the anachronism is because we know cars were not yet invented in the time of George Washington. That's what we call a historical anachronism. It's out of time. And he said, that's what we see all through the Hebrew writings and the camels is exhibit A. When it says Abraham had camels or Job had camels, we know that's not true because the camels were not domesticated until centuries after those guys were supposed to have been alive. So that's one reason we know the Bible's not true. Now, wow, never heard of that before. And that actually led me, I remember going to the library at California State University and looking up all the stuff on historical criticism and the documentary hypothesis and all this kind of stuff. And it was the first time I'd been confronted with it because even though I had some great teachers at Pacific Union College where I did my uh, BA degree in religion and theology, same time I was working on the biology, they never warned me about that. Bless their hearts. It's kind of like taking a biology class and never being told that there's a theory of evolution out there, you know? Uh, we, I don't think, do that anymore regardless of where your professors come from. Uh, I think pretty much all Adventists are aware of the theory of evolution. I certainly was well trained in that before I got out into the real world. Even my Adventist professors gave me a good background in the theory of evolution even though they didn't believe it. Uh, we were given the scientific evidence. So this kind of caught me by surprise and it almost, you know, almost lost my faith over this because I saw the problems didn't see any solutions immediately. Um, the reason I mention that one example is because many years later, after I'd finished my PhD and I was uh, doing archaeology, I'd worked for many seasons in Israel and traveled all over the Middle East, you know, Greece and Turkey and uh, Egypt. I'd been all over the place there. And uh, one summer, I had an opportunity to take a few of my students with me. I think we had um, a couple jeep loads. And we were studying ancient inscriptions. Now, uh, one of the historical critical problems I was introduced to was the idea that Moses could not have written Genesis because Moses didn't know how to write in an alphabetic script, okay? I found out later, by the way, there's a lot of interesting things you learn about the history of scholarship, that most of the scholars saying that Moses couldn't write Genesis because he didn't know how to write, at least he didn't know how to write the alphabet, was, uh, these were German scholars in pre-World War II Germany. And they had the the idea that the Jews could have uh, been the earliest people to write the alphabet was totally unacceptable to them. They could not have the Semitic peoples writing the alphabet and so they kind of erased that part of history. And there's been a few papers done, scholarly papers showing, uh, written by Israelis who are getting a little, you know, (laughs) pointing out the great bias, the uh, anti-Semitic bias by the Nazi German scholars who were trying to, you know, obliterate this part of the history. Well, but that was still an interesting issue. When was the alphabet invented? You know, was it invented before Abraham's time? Could he, or Moses' time? Could he have written the Hebrew Bible? It'd be very hard to write the Bible in hieroglyphics. Your Bible would be about this thick, you know, instead of like it is. Or was the alphabet around? So anyway, it turned out archeologists started finding little snippets of a, a very early alphabet in different places. They found two or three examples in Palestine. But they also, uh, over 100 years ago, they uh, one guy named Sir Flinders Petrie found an example of the alphabet in some mountains north of the traditional Mount Sinai. Uh, He was out there uh, looking around for some archeological evidence of the ancient Egyptians. It turns out the Egyptians, around the time of Moses, Uh, whether you believe in Moses or not. But anyway, around the time of Moses, the Egyptians, 18th dynasty Egyptians, those are the ones we often associate with the time of the Exodus, Hatshepsut, that Moses the third, Amenhotep the second if you're into the Egyptian stuff. They were boonie crashing themselves in the Northern Sinai area, north of Mount Sinai, and they found some turquoise mines, and they got a bunch of Semitic slaves. Not necessarily Hebrews, could have been, but they got some Semitic slaves to dig these turquoise mines for them. And those uh, slaves, while they were working there, they occasionally would write graffiti on the rocks. And guess what they were using, the alphabet. It turns out, we call it the Proto-Sinaitic alphabet. It was a precursor to the later Hebrew alphabet. And uh, scholars now can link the two alphabets directly together, one evolved into the other. So the alphabet did exist, and this was a alphabet that dated back to the pre-Moses times, perhaps even into the patriarchal period. And so I had read about this inscription, and I wanted to see it for myself. I'd seen the pictures and read the scholarly reports, but you know, to be a good, credible teacher, you gotta see this stuff yourself, right? And so I figured, okay, I'm gonna drive out there with one of my fellow professors and I'll bring along a few of the lucky students that get to go along and see this stuff. So we rented a couple of Jeeps and we drove out literally into the desert where places were usually only Bedu on camels ride around. We were literally four wheel driving in the sands of the Sinai, very exciting stuff. you know. I break down once in a while and hope you don't die out there in the wilderness like the Israelites and all that. We had lots of adventures, but eventually we got to the right mountain uh, where they had seen these Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions. And so we stop our jeep and we climb up to the mountain pass. The desert's very interesting because you've got these sandy, vast valleys like you see in the, you know, uh, movies. And then you've got these very rugged bare mountains in between. So it's uh, interesting topography. So we climb up on this one mountain and sure enough, we had an old photograph a hundred years before and the archeologist Sir Flenders Petrie had made an X on the photograph showing where the ancient alphabetic inscription was. So, you know, we saw the mountain matched up with the photograph perfectly. We climbed up to where the X was. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones X never marks the spot. Well, that's not true. The X marked the spot perfectly. We got up there and we found the Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions. It was the early copy of the alphabet. And we, of course, were quite excited and we took our own pictures of that. Since then, I should say that archeologists working in Egypt found an alphabet even earlier by a thousand years in Egypt. So the idea that the alphabet was not around in Moses' time is a totally bogus idea. It's been blown away by plenty of discoveries. But at this time, uh, you know, we didn't know about that Egyptian discovery, so we were keen to see this. Well, when we got up into this Rocky Mountain Pass and we were looking at the Proto-Sinaitic inscription, right next to it was an Egyptian inscription from the 12th dynasty, and that helped date the other inscription because we know when the 12th dynasty was. That goes back to the patriarchal period. While I was looking at those two inscriptions, I noticed that on the rock face, there was a lot of pictorial graffiti. We call these pictographs, or you know, petroglyphs is another name for them. And while I was looking at the petroglyphs, I was stunned to see a picture of a camel. <laughs> and I could tell from the patina, you know these things when you carve into the rock, uh, they go through a process, you know, oxidations like that, and they uh, become decolorized, you know, they get a funny color to them through the hundreds and even thousands of years, and uh, the patina matched perfectly these early alphabetic and Egyptian inscriptions. So that was a very old drawing of the camel. Now that was cool, but then that by itself doesn't prove anything. But as I look closely at the petroglyph of the camel, there was a little stick figure of a man in front of him, and it was a rope tied from the camel's neck to the man. and the man was clearly leading the camel. Now, it turns out, have you ever tried leading a wild camel by a rope? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. What happens is the man is behind the camel being drugged as the camel runs off into the desert. So clearly the fact that the man was in front of the camel leading the camel with a rope showed that this was a depiction of a domesticated camel before the time my professor told me that the camels were domesticated. So I took pictures of that. I published a couple of articles, and I read a paper at a scholarly meeting in Jordan. And I, you know, concluded my paper. I didn't talk about the Bible particularly. I just said we now have clear evidence that camels were domesticated, uh, you know, way back in the uh, late Bronze Age or even the Middle Bronze Age, way back earlier. Some of the scholars in the audience knew immediately the implications, <laughs> and I saw a couple of scowls out there weren't too happy with what I seemed to be saying, but one distinguished professor, uh, David, and it wasn't David O. Freeman, it was David Graff, who as another archeologist who was an inscription expert. He stood up, and he said, congratulations, Dr. Yark, you found a very significant discovery. <laughs> This changes the whole understanding of the use of camels in the past, their domestication, and he's convinced that they were used in early trade routes, and that was my conclusion too because this was found right next to these mining fields, and what probably was happening was that these ancient peoples were using the camels to carry the turquoise out of the desert back to Egypt where they were being incorporated in the jewelry-making enterprise. Uh, And it probably would have to be camels because if you ever tried loading up a little donkey with a lot of turquoise, you've got the little hoofs going through the sand. The donkey doesn't like it very much, and he doesn't go very well. In fact, for a desert transport, the best animal is indeed the camel. They got the big fat feet that can, you know, walk on the sand. So the only way that those Egyptians are getting that turquoise out was with a camel. And the pictures help prove that fact. So we have evidence for the use of early camels in the Egyptian trade industry. And so that whole idea is being revolutionized. But my point is simply this, that a lot of times You'll hear our beloved professors and teachers and scholars saying this is well established scholarly consensus uh, until it's destroyed by the ugly fact. Uh, in fact, Bill Deaver, one of my professors at Arizona, he says, you know, we, we spin all these wonderful theories until they get destroyed by, you know, the elegant theory destroyed by the ugly fact. And that's what happened here. And that is one of several experiences I've had as an archeologist where I heard things that were set in concrete, this is the way it is, only to get blown out of the water by a new archeological discovery. And so that has taught me a certain amount of patience. A lot of times there are problems in science that right now there seems to be no reasonable solution. You know, these things seem to be in direct contradiction to the Bible. And I have certain problems. If I wanted to play the devil's advocate, I could stand here for an hour and easily tell you about all the problems that I don't have resolution to between science and scripture. I actually did it as an experiment once when I was teaching up at uh, PUC because I was you know, making a defense of the Bible and one of my students said, well, what about the other side? People say there's these other problems, you know, tell us about those. I said, okay, you really want me to? And he said, sure. So for one hour, I just laid it on, all the reasons they shouldn't believe in the Bible. That guy was almost in tears. I gave him everything I had been taught you know, in my graduate program and uh, he, he walked out, says I've, you've destroyed my faith. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, you asked me to give you the other side to play the devil's advocate, and I did, but I said, I don't believe that that's the ultimate solution to things, you know, that I think there's a way of dealing with it. I was just letting you know how it sounds in a real university when they present these problems. I had to call him on the phone and reassure him. He was shaken up completely. And so that reminded me of the important obligation we have as professors that when we do share challenging and even, at times, apparently contradictory evidence, we have to be very careful not to shake people up, particularly young people. They haven't had the same time. They're intelligent, there's no doubt about it, but they haven't necessarily had the time to read as much literature, to have the experiences, to travel around the world, you know, to deal with other scholars in the real world, to be able to cope with all these things. So it's very easy to shake them up and uh, have them lose their faith. I have had more than one student come into my office at the seminary and say, you know, I was in this science class, the professor destroyed my faith, I don't even believe in God anymore, can you help me? You know, that really happens. And so we have to be very, very careful and have patience. When we do have problems, just not give up. There may be some answers that will come a little bit later on. Well, let me share with you a couple of little things um, that I often hear thrown around and to show you that given a little more time and a little deeper study, there can be solutions to things that we may not realize. I'll talk first of all about the two um, creation theory, and this is, by the way, not a complete discussion of this. There's a few elements I'm gonna have to leave out due to time, but I'll at least give you some of the outer contours of the argument. Back in 1885, this chap on the left, this is the famous Julius Wellhausen. He's sort of like Charles Darwin in biology. Wellhausen is one of the major figures in undermining the Bible, one of the early historical critics, the father of the modern documentary hypothesis that says Moses did not write Genesis, instead it was written by some other individuals later than the time of Moses, and that these people actually contradict each other. These are contradictory creation accounts. Clearly, if Moses didn't write it and the Bible's contradicting itself, we wouldn't want to take it as inspired revelation from God. That was the basic implication, and that's what my professors were teaching me. Um, JMP authorship, they, uh, J-E-D-P, by the way, uh, they say these are the four people that really wrote the Pentateuch, Moses' books. J is for the Yahwist, a guy who liked to call God Yahweh, and he also may have come from uh, the, uh, uh, the land of Judah. Uh, E was a guy that liked to call God Elohim, and it's thought he might have come from the land of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, north of Jerusalem. D stands for a chap called the Deuteronomist, who's uh, credited for writing most of the book of Deuteronomy, much later than the time of Moses. And then the P is the wonderful person known as the priest, and he liked to write uh, things in a very orderly way, and he's credited with writing chapter one, where the days are uh formulated in a very systematic fashion god creates and then it was day one god creates and it was evening morning day two and so forth so that had to be the work of the priest and he writes somewhere between 700 and 500 bc over 700 years or even more after the time of moses and this was all wellhausen's argument he said these are the guys that really wrote the bible moses had nothing to do with it and so there is no divine inspiration there well Let's look at the 2 contradictory creation stories just for a moment. The first creation story, the close of the first creation story ends like this. Uh, at the end, I'm using the NIV Bible. It says, uh, God saw all that he made, this is towards the end of chapter one, God saw all that he had made and it was very good, tov meod, and there was evening and morning, of vaboker, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He was doing, had been doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all of His work. This suggests that the first creation week was a completed creation. Everything's done, everything's wonderful. Then you go to the beginning of the second creation story, which is usually said to start in chapter 2, verse 4b. Uh, When you get to chapter two, five of Genesis, it actually suggests that there's four things that, oops, God forgot to create these things. Chapter one says the creation's completed, but in chapter two, we see that there's four things that were not yet. Um, The word for not yet, by the way, in Hebrews, terim, explicitly says, God forgot to make these four things. Well, what are the four things that God forgot in the second creation account? Well, it says he forgot to make a shrub of the field in uh, the NIV version. It says he forgot to make a plant to the field. It says he forgot to make a man to work the ground. Well, that's a pretty serious omission. You know, man was created in day six in uh, chapter one, but whoops, God forgot him in the second creation account. Forgot to make man. And then third, he forgot to provide rain to water the earth. That's a pretty serious omission. You know, how are you gonna water the plants if there's no rain? So it looks like you've got a contradiction between chapters one and two. Was the creation in chapter 2 really not completed? Did God really leave four things out? Is there a contradiction between these two chapters? Were they really written by two different individuals and Moses had nothing to do with it? That's the question. And of course we have testimony that Moses wrote these elsewhere in scripture and Jesus himself testified that Moses wrote Genesis 1. So what's going on here? Well, as I said, Genesis 2 actually begins if you have an English Bible, it won't be perfect because you really need to read this in Hebrew, but we'll, we won't hold that against you right now. Uh, but it starts in chapter two, verse 4b. It introduces a specific theme. There are four things that God had not yet created after He created the earth and the heaven. And it's interesting they reversed the words earth and heaven from heaven and earth in chapter one. Two of the four things that were not yet created are plants, shrub of the field and plant of the field. In Hebrew, and by the way, Hebrew is very, very important because a lot of times, English translators are not always sure about what to translate the Hebrew word, so they kind of make things up. So uh, I don't wanna to digress too much. We've got a few people that love the King James Version of the Bible, and I love the King James Version of the Bible too, but there's a few funny little things in the King James Version translated in the uh, 1600s. You know, came out around uh, the beginning of the 1600s, there, 1611 thereabouts. Um, a lot of the guys who were translating the King James Version of the Bible did not really understand the plants and the animals of Palestine because they lived in jolly old England. Okay, so they're reading this stuff, they're trying to make a good, faithful translation but they sometimes came to Hebrew words of plants and animals. They had no idea what those things were. And so what they did was they looked around the botany and the, you know, the uh, animals of England, and they would slip those in there. So you read, when you look at the species provided the King James Version, you'll find that the plants all look like they came from England, okay? One of my jobs in, uh, I was given an assignment to actually work on the plants and animals of the Hebrew not the King James Version, but at the Hebrew, and try and relate them to actual species that live in Palestine. I wrote a couple articles on that. it's was kind of fun. We don't always know all the correlations, but in most cases, we can actually figure out the species of plants and animals referred to in the Hebrew based on what's actually found there today. So, uh, anyway, my point is that the Hebrew matter, they actually, I think, King James, they talk about the unicorn. The unicorn does not exist as an animal in real life. That's a horse with a horn coming out of the head, you know. But in England, they came across a certain Hebrew word and they didn't know how to translate it in the King James, the King James Translator. So they basically borrowed an animal from British mythology and they put the unicorn in. So that's how we got the unicorn into the King James Version. Actually, it seems to be a misunderstanding of a type of ibex that does live in Palestine. So, and that's not to put down the King James Version. I'm just saying that in some of the uh, technical words in the 1600s, the British Hebrew scholars didn't know what the plants and animals were. And so they were kind of inserting things from their English understanding. So it leads to some interesting interpretations. But let's go to the shrub of the field. What was a shrub of the field? Well, the Hebrew word for shrub of the field in chapter two is siach hasade. Siach Hasade. The plant of the field is a different set of Hebrew words. It's the asev hasade okay? We'll come back to breaking that down in just a moment. Now, doesn't this counterdict? It says the shrub of the field, and plants of the field had not been created yet. Well, when you look at um, Genesis 1, verses 11 and 12, which says God created plants in the third day. Aren't they created? Are the plants of chapter one the same as the plants of chapter two? Didn't God forget to create them in chapter two? Well, when you look at the Hebrew, the words are not the same Hebrew words. That's very important. The plants that are mentioned in chapter one are different Hebrew words than the ones in chapter two. So apparently the writer is talking about two different things. He's not contradicting himself, He's talking about two different things. Well, then, what are the plants in chapter two, and what were the plants in chapter one that were created? Well, the word in chapter one, one of the words in Hebrew is the Desha esev matzri, that refers or is translated to seed-bearing plants, and it often says according to their kind, seed-bearing plants. And then you have the siri, the aits piri asapiri, the seed-bearing fruit trees. So you have. Uh, seed-bearing plants and seed-bearing fruit trees created in chapter one. But those are not the words that appear in chapter two in the so-called second creation account. Well, then what are those plants? Well, uh, here's a a typical, commentator back in the uh, 1800s. He did not see the difference in the Hebrew and he was one of the ones to argue for two contradictory creation accounts. His name was August Dillman. There's a picture of the old boy on the right there. I always like to put the pictures of these guys up for my students so they can look into their beady little eyes and see what they really look like. These were just human beings like you and me. A lot of times you just hear a name and you're kind of like a naw, but when you can see, yeah, they were just human beings too. They're not so intimidating. Anyway, he assumed that the plants in Genesis 1 and 2 were the same thing, but he didn't look at the Hebrew. He wrote a commentary at it, but he didn't refer to the Hebrew words. Shame on him, he should have looked at the Hebrew. Anyway, there was a guy though who happened to be a Jewish scholar, so he actually spoke Hebrew, that was his language. His name was Umberto Casuto, and he said, wait a minute. There's two different kinds of words in chapter 2 verses chapter 1, and he notes that the word siach, which is translated as shrub in the NIV, is actually quite rare in Scripture, occurring only in Genesis 2, 5, 21, 15, and Job chapter 30 verses 4 and 7. And he says that the context of those other verses, Job 30, make it very clear that a siach is actually what we call botanically a xerophyte, or a spiny or thorny plant. Now, I've worked in Israel and Jordan for quite a few years and there's a number of these siach hasades running around the hillside. Some of them have very thick thorns. I stepped on a siach one day and it went right through my rubber sandal between my toes, fortunately. Otherwise, I would have had a crucifixion experience because the thing was like a three-inch iron nail, very strong. And this was a problem for Palestine. It's covered with these kinds of thorny plants. The full expression, siach hasade. And by the way, in Hebrew, when you look at words that are in construct or are, are together in a phrase, every word is important. Hebrew is a very concise language; they can say more with less words than we do in English. So every word counts. So you need to get the uh, meaning of the whole phrase. This is unique in Scripture, appearing only in Genesis 2:5. So siach hasade appears in Genesis 2:5. We'll come back to that in a moment. Here's a picture of Canaan's thorny plants on the hillsides. There. Let's go to the second plant. Esev is fairly common in the Hebrew text, the word for plant, but the expression Esev hasadi occurs only in a few places. I actually found a couple more verses, but Kasuto found only a couple, Genesis 2.5 and Genesis 3.18. Kasuto astutely pointed out that in Genesis 3.18, the Esev hasade, the plant of the field, is specifically designated as the food Adam will have to eat as a result of his sin. Now, that's rather interesting. In Genesis three eighteen, it said, because Adam, you have sinned now, you're going to have to, by the sweat of your brow, eat a sev a And Casuto suggests appropriately that this was a type of grain plant that they had to cultivate in the Middle East. Now, look at the context of this. What we start seeing developing is that the things that were not yet in chapter two that some critics have said they were left out of the creation of chapter one, we're discovering they're not good things. And there's a reason why they were there there's a reason why they were not yet. And what Moses is trying to explain, if you look at it in the context of the composition of Moses, according to the biblical view, um, most Christians and Jews believe that the author was uh, Moses, and that according to Ellen White, Moses wrote the book of Genesis when he was, Uh, sitting in the corner, behaving himself after killing the Egyptian soldier. You know, he had to go sit in the corner for uh, 40 years and look at the wall and think about things. Then God let him come back. During that time, we were told that he wrote the book of Genesis and the book of Job. And this matches Jewish tradition. Well, what's the context of writing Genesis? When Moses comes back to Israel, what does God want him to do? I'm sorry, when he comes back to Egypt, what does God want Moses to do? lead his people out, right? He's supposed to come and liberate them. He tried to do it by killing the Egyptian officer. That wasn't the right way. After 40 years, God brings him back to do it the right way. Moses wasn't so keen about the idea of going back. He said, oh, I don't wanna talk. I can't talk, you know, and and besides, they are gonna wonder who sent me. He actually explicitly asked God, who am I supposed to say sent me? They're gonna think I'm a crazy man that came out of the wilderness. And basically, God says, tell them that the God of their fathers, the great I am, is the one who has sent you. Well, of course, the natural question is, who in the world is that? These are uh, Israelites who have been slaves for at least 215 years. Some people would suggest 430 years, depending on how you translate the Hebrew text. They were no longer acquainted with the God of their fathers. And so what Moses had in his back pocket, so to speak, was a copy of Genesis, which explained to the Israelites, the Hebrew slaves, who that God was. Just saying, I am has sent me, wouldn't make a lot of sense to people. It had known I am for a long time. And so really the whole story of Genesis tells that story. And Moses is going to invite these Hebrew slaves to follow him out of Egypt and go to a place called the promised land, right? Now, when you read that word, the promised land, a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. honey. Well, there were a lot of sheep around, that's the milk and there were bees in the hills and that made the honey. But guess what? There's a lot more than just milk and honey in the promised land. In Egypt, remember as the Israelites were leaving the country they kind of wanted to go back. Remember they didn't like living in the wilderness and they missed the Nile River and all the bountiful things and the food that would produce and the garlics and everything else. And Moses and God actually knew that this was going to be a problem because when Israel left Egypt and the Nile River and its sure bounty they were going to be going to a land of Canaan where things were not so sure. They were going to run into something in Canaan that you didn't see in Egypt and they were going to have to contend with thorns, and this is archeologically verified. It was a very thorny land in the Iron Age when the Israelites arrived, when they started settling there. They weren't gonna like that very well. Plus, there was no Nile River to water everything. They were going to have to depend on something that the Canaanites had had to do for centuries, rain-fed agriculture. Now, that means there was no regular irrigation. They had to wait for the rain to come at the right time. And this is where the expressions early rain and latter rain came from. If the early rain comes at the right time, you grow great crops and the Israelites are gonna be happy. Yeah, this is the promised land, but what if the early rain doesn't come at the right time? No crops, famine, starvation, yuck, okay? What if the latter rain doesn't come at the right time? No crops, starvation, yuck, okay? This would be the reality that the Israelites would have to re-encounter as they came back into the promised land. If they were faithful to God, God would protect them. But if they deviated from God, they were gonna to have to contend with these things that were not part of God's original creation. And that's the point of chapter two, that the things that were not yet were things you don't want, but I wanna to explain to you how they got here. And so chapter two turns out to be a literary bridge, the thorns and the thistles, and the need to work and cultivate grain plants, and the dependence upon rain. That's one of the four things are were not yet. And then the fourth thing was a man to till the soil. It wasn't that there were no men, The Hebrew modifier is important. It was a man to till the soil, because tilling the rocky, thorny soil is a very difficult thing. And this was a new thing that the Israelites are going to have to explain in the Promised Land. It's very interesting that in the Mesopotamian versions of the flood story, it says that the gods created human beings for the express purpose of tilling uh, the valleys of the Euphrates River. And it says, we will make the men work for us and they will be like cattle. We'll make them work like cattle. Having human beings work for their supper was not God's original plan. In the Garden of Eden, God provided the food, right, the plants, he provided the water. Remember, there was a mist in a river, that provided the water, God planted the garden, they didn't have to till, and he provided everything they needed. But the Israelites now were going to this new land and they were going to face a new reality and God is explaining through Moses in chapter two that even though I am the creator of the world and I made it tov meod, when you get to the promised land, you're gonna find four things that are part of your daily life That was not part of my original plan. Now, when you start realizing these extra elements in chapter 2, the idea that chapter 2 was written by a different person hundreds of years later in contradiction to chapter 1 becomes nonsense. More and more Hebrew scholars are recognizing that chapter 2 is a literary unit that bridges chapter 1 with chapter 3. Without chapter 2, chapter 3 makes no sense. And there's more and more increasing evidence There's structural arguments and linguistic terms as well that show that all of these were written at the same time. So we don't have a contradictory creation story. So I'm kind of skipping through some things. Maybe we can leave the PowerPoint behind. You can look at this at your own leisure. Genesis 2 then is a literary bridge. I will maybe share with you one other little thing very quickly and then we'll close and have some time for questions i'm going longer than i I meant to go the second thing i'm often hearing is didn't the hebrews have naive ideas about the world didn't they really have pre-scientific ideas weren't they so naive and silly and stupid we don't like to say that but didn't they believe that the heavens the sky was actually an upside down metal dome You know, that was a common idea we're told in Babylon and so forth. And so, and the Hebrews probably when they were in exile, they borrowed this idea of the upside down metal sky, you know, that you could climb up on a ladder and bang your head against the ceiling of the heavens, you know, and it would go like that, you know, and you'd come back down. And this is, you know, this is another illustration of how the Bible gives us a rather pre-scientific naive view of the cosmos. So, we started doing some research, uh, myself and some colleagues, wondering, did they really believe that? And we made some interesting discoveries about that whole idea as well. I've been hearing it circulating even down here in Southern California occasionally. Uh, did the ancient Hebrews have naive ideas such as the firmament was an upside-down metal bowl like dizzy borrowed from Mesopotamia? Well, towards the end of the 19th century, many scholars generally assumed that this was the case that the Hebrews borrowed these ideas from the Babylonians and then they incorporated it into their Bible and their Genesis account. A good example of this is the same guy we talked about, Herman Gunkel. He's part of the pan-Babylonian school. that said that most of the ideas in Genesis came from the Babylonians, and he wrote in 1895 that the description of the solid vault of the heavens in Genesis was a very widespread idea among many primitive peoples. Then you have uh, the Italian astronomer, Schiaparelli. He published a book, initially in Italian in 1903, and then an English version came out in 1905. It's called The Astronomy of the Old Testament, and he offered a reconstruction of what he thought the ancient Hebrews thought about the universe, the cosmos. So he's the guy we can blame for the picture I'm gonna show you next that's been repeated for a 100 years since, coming out in all sorts of Hebrew commentaries. Uh, Unfortunately, he treated many metaphorical passages in the Psalms in a literal fashion and came up with the following reconstruction. He was not real sensitive to Hebrew genre. So he drew this picture and you can see in this picture that the earth of the Hebrews was very flat that there were subterranean seas with fountains of the deep coming up, and then down there with P and Q, that's where hell or Shoal is located. And then you have up above, you have the solid dome, metal dome of the heavens with water hidden up in some of the chambers. And this whole dome rests on top of a flat earth. And so he's the first guy to publish this. This idea has come down to us for 100 years plus and has been repeated with modifications in commentary after commentary. Unfortunately, very few scholars, even though I brag about Hebrew scholars and uh, their advantage over the evangelicals who like to mess with the text, they kind of messed up on this one. They followed Schiaparelli's uh, Reconstruction rather blindly. There were a few people that objected at the time. Here is William Warren. Uh, He read Schiaparelli's work when it came out. Dr. Warren happened to be the president of Boston University and was a pretty good Hebrew scholar. And he said, this is all nonsense. He said the Hebrews would not recognize this cosmology if you drew it on a piece of paper and handed it to them. You may think that William Warren was kind of an old fogey with stuffy ideas and unwilling to give up his uh, archaic views of the Bible. However, in his day, he was kind of a radical. He actually believed that women were as smart as men and should be allowed to go to college. Can you imagine? (laughs) He was one of the first ones to allow women to become medical doctors in the United States of America, Boston College, Boston University actually led in the right for women to go to school. So he wasn't quite the old fogey, you might think, but he was a good linguist. And he said, this idea of Sky Aparelli is not valid. He wrote a pretty good re- critique of it, but people at the time were intrigued by this and they ignored Warren. Here's Owen Charles Whitehouse, published a book entitled The from Inscriptions in the Old Testament. And here's his view, and again, you see a flat earth with an upside down metal dome with little holes in it for the water to come through. Then the moon and the stars are kind of glued onto the bottom of that metal dome. And this was the typical thing that they were saying you take from a very literalistic reading of certain Hebrew passages, which I I I would argue were meant to be taken non-literally. It's really ironic that when they come to Genesis, a lot of these critical scholars will say that this is not to be literal, but then they go to the metaphorical language in the Psalms and say this is to be taken literal, and they've got it completely backwards. The Hebrew writer meant the Genesis to be literal and the Psalms to be metaphorical, but these critics reversed it too, and so they come up with these wonderful creations of what the Hebrews thought. Very interesting backward thinking, in my opinion, respectfully. Here's a view from the 1966 Understanding Genesis by the Jewish scholar uh, Sarna, and he has the same kind of a thing. You can see the upside down uh, bowl at the top, the highest heaven, he's got these windows he's stuck in there for the water to come out. He's got the pillars of the earth holding up the dome, and he's got the flat earth with hell and the waters underneath. So you can see they're playing with this idea that is traced back to Schiaparelli. And this came from an Adventist publication just a few years ago. I won't go into the names. These guys were trying to help us understand Genesis, but they were just repeating an old idea of a flat earth with an upside down metal bowl. And this is repeated over and over and over again. Well, What about ancient Orishan scholars and Hebrew scholars? Well, in 1975, a British scholar named Wilfred Lambert was actually assigned the task of trying to figure out, what did the ancient Mesopotamians actually think? Did they believe that the sky and the heavens were really an upside down metal bull? He was the publisher, by the way, of the Atrahasis epic, which was a Mesopotamian uh, story of the creation and the flood. And uh, he's a very uh, renowned linguist. So he started looking at this idea. Did they really believe that the sky was a uh, metal bull? And he came to this conclusion in his 1975 publication. He said, in conclusion, it may be well to indicate the lack of sound evidence for two ideas commonly attributed to the Babylonians and their forerunners. I'll skip the first one because it doesn't speak to the point. He says, secondly, the idea that the sky was thought to be in the shape of a dome. He goes on to say the idea of a vault of heaven is not based on any piece of evidence. Ooh, for years, going back to Gunkel, you know, the Bible scholars are saying the Hebrews borrow this idea from the Mesopotamians and everybody knows this. But the first guy to actually look at the ancient Babylonian and Assyrian literature said, can't find a shred of evidence for this. Where did this idea come from? It was inserted in by some scholars. In fact, you'll see partly how it got going here. There was a chap who did a study on the Babylonian cosmology in 1890. His name was Peter Jensen. He was a German speaking scholar and he did a study and he actually i don't know if i put that picture in here i think i might have accidentally left it out because this is an abbreviated version he actually inserted into the ancient akkadian the word vault it was not in the original language he just stuck it in there and from that one scholarly mistake a whole group of <laughs> generations of hebrew scholars have assumed this is what the babylonians thought but there's not a shred of evidence for it. That's not what the ancient Babylonians thought. There was a more recent dissertation uh, by a kid named Wayne Horowitz, he's not a kid anymore, but uh, he discovered that the Mesopotamians actually believe in three flat heavens and three flat earths and there's no correlation with what the Hebrew talks about at all. The idea that the Hebrews borrowed their ideas from the Babylonians or the Assyrians just has no ground in fact. The word vault doesn't even appear in their lexicon. So this is how he uh, understood the heavens to be organized in Mesopotamia, no relationship to what we see uh, in the uh, Hebrew Bible. Well, there is a interesting issue in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and some critics have pointed to that. The word for firmament in Hebrew is rakia, but in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word is stereoma and that got translated into the Latin as firmamentum, suggesting that the Hebrew rachia meant something solid like an upside down metal dome or vault. That's what people assume. Well, where did the idea of stereoma come from in the Greek version of the Old Testament? Well, the Greek version was written during the time of Ptolemy II. The legend, we don't know that this is true, but the idea was that 70 Jewish scholars came to Egypt from Jerusalem to Alexandria, and they were to translate the Pentateuch into a Greek version of the Old Testament to be placed in the great library at Alexandria. This is supposed to have happened somewhere before 246 BC, the famous Septuagint version of the Bible. And so they did make this translation. Well. They had a problem, these um, Jewish scholars, translating rakia into Greek. They did not know how to translate the word because rakia is a rare, rare word in Hebrew. And so while at Alexandria, they apparently asked the Greek scholars there, what is the heaven like? And they were having a big debate in Alexandria at that time. In fact, it had been going on for several centuries. They believed, believe it or not, the earth was round, not flat. That was never the question. The big debate was, how do the stars rotate around? And so there were a few theories suggesting that maybe there were some crystal domes up there, celestial spheres, they called them. They were not domes properly. They were not half bowls that rested on a flat Earth. Rather, they were complete balls or spheres that circulated around and moved the moon and the stars and the planets with them. So it was a different concept. And so the Septuagint scholars borrowed the idea from the Greek scholars that the heavens were made out of these solid crystal spheres, but they were not half domes resting on a flat earth. That's a very important distinction. They were rotating spheres. And so that's where the stereoma came from, from Greek science but that's not what the Hebrews thought hundreds of years earlier with rakia. This was a mistranslation, and that's how the word firmament came from. It came from the idea that something was firm, but that was a misapprehension of the Greek concept that was going on in the centuries just before Jesus. There was a recent uh, book, a study done by Jeff Russell from Southern California, came out just a couple years back. And he did a lot of research to show the idea that the medieval and early Christians believed in a flat earth. This was commonly assumed by scholars that, you know, everybody throughout the Middle Ages and even earlier in the Byzantine church thought the earth was flat and there was an upside down bull. He goes to show that that whole idea was the invention, get this, not of the medieval scholars. He went through all the medieval texts he could find. He went through all the early Christian texts he could find in Greek and Latin, every language. And he said no one was teaching that back then except for three or four people and they were written off as kooks. Back in biblical uh, New Testament times and the Middle Ages even, no one thought of a flat earth. No one was teaching that you could go like Columbus, they they say Columbus time and go to the edge of the earth and fall off, no one was teaching that. That was an invention of two or three and he identifies them in his book, 19th century scholars who wanted to discredit the Christian history tradition. So they actually made that up and it got into the 19th century critical literature and everybody started saying, ah, the biblical people and the early Christians and the medieval people all thought that the world was flat. Weren't they stupid, ha, ha, ha. But it was all a lie. And so he's published a book, The Myth of the Flat Earth. And his arguments, actually, I've been tracing his arguments with the dome and it turns out the same thing happened there. The whole thing was a concoction of 19th century scholarship. It was not believed by the medieval church nor was it believed by the early Christian church. The final piece, of, this is kind of a, a, one of these guys that was promoting this idea in 1888, the idea that you could go to the edge of the flat earth and bump your head against a metal dome and stick out and see what's on the other side, but no one really thought that. This was an invention of 19th century scholarship. So, if you look at the actual linguistic evidence for Rakia, uh, and I don't have time to go through that, but I could if you want. I've written a paper on this with Dr. Davidson from the Seminary Old Testament Department. When you look at all of the linguistic variations, it turns out that rakia does not refer to a metal dome at all, and we can defend that. We looked at the noun form and the verb form, and this fellow, Robert Newman, actually does a pretty good study, and he's published it in a book, showing that this was not the idea of the ancient Hebrews. So the idea that they believed in a metal dome does not have any basis in good sound exegetical or historical study but I'm hearing this idea over and over again by uh, critics of the Bible who like to say that the Hebrews are naive and so forth. So these were just two studies I could do more on the days and so forth, showing that there's a lot of funny scholarship going on that tends to undermine the Bible, but when you really look at the details closely, you'll find out that that's not what the ancient Hebrews thought that their understanding of the Bible is solid and compatible with what we believe, even as modern people. They didn't have a modern view with all of its details, but they neither did they have these naive ideas of flat earth and upside down bulls and so forth. So to try and discredit the Bible by suggesting they had bad ideas is not a scholarly viable conclusion. So we can still have confidence that the people wrote uh, we're giving us uh, good, reliable information. So these are just a few examples of some studies that are going on to counteract some of the stuff that's being uh, suggested out there. I'm gonna come to a conclusion, I've gone a little bit over time, so this will, end some of the presentation, there are a lot of things I didn't get into. Uh, this is part of a 15-week course, so you can imagine there's an awful lot of uh, material to discuss, but I wanted to uh, have a few minutes to allow people to ask some questions. I think there's actually some written questions. so. Um, Angela, do you want to kind of take over here? And, uh, and if people need to go, that's okay, but if they want to stick around and uh, hear some of the uh, questions, that'll be fine too. And as we're getting the questions, I want to say, remember, I'm not a scientist. I mean, I am a scientist, but I'm not a paleontologist. I'm not a geologist, and I will humbly suggest there's an awful lot of things I don't know, so I'm not gonna to pretend to have answers for everything, but I'll give you my best impressions and understandings for the best that I can.